Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Before getting into the episode today, I wanted to share with you the exciting news that the podcast now has a website, runfitraj.com. That's R-U-N-F-I-T-R-A-J.com. Please check out the website. Uh, it has all the podcast. It has all the show notes. There is a very useful search function we can, uh, where you can search the various episodes and the show notes. And do send me any feedback or questions uh, that you have. That's runfitraj.com. Our guest today is Mark Byrne from uh, Sydney in Australia. Mark is a former Australian rules football player who is now a leading voice in combining ancient traditions and techniques of Ayurveda, Eastern medicine, and other older systems with Western techniques to bring a shift in our thinking about health, happiness, high performance, and higher consciousness. Uh, Mark has an honors degree in exercise physiology. He's a best-selling author, and I highly recommend his book, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Health, which explains in great detail his learnings and understanding of these topics. In addition, he is a certified transcendental meditation trainer, and he's also a leading speaker. Finally, Mark does a lot of nonprofit work as the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation in Australia, where he works with people who have encountered extreme trauma or stress, like domestic violence victims, veterans with PTSD, children who come from troubled backgrounds, to name a few. So welcome to the show, Mark. Raj, it is an absolute pleasure uh, to be with you and your wonderful audience. Thank you, Mark. Uh, so uh, yeah, why don't we start with you giving the audience a little bit of your background and how you got interested in in the areas that you are today working in. And I know that uh, you... You, you got involved almost three decades back and that's that's you know at that point in time I'm sure it was it was not fashionable to talk about Ayurveda and Eastern medicine and combining those techniques so uh, we would love to hear in your own words mark uh, how, how this journey began and where it has taken you thank you yeah well I started my career as a professional footballer in Australia we have a national code which is a combination of a bit like soccer that Indians would be familiar with, and American gridiron. So it's a very high-impact sport, but there's no helmets or padding. So I was always interested in performance and getting the best in terms of fitness and the whole mind-body connection. And while I was playing, I got introduced to something called transcendental meditation, which was um, a technique, ancient meditation technique taught by Mahashi Mahesh Yogi, a great Indian Vedic scholar. And during that time, um, I was then introduced to Ayurvedic medicine through a book all about sports performance and fitness, but using the traditional Ayurvedic wisdoms of life. And I loved it. It just, I was studying Western medicine at the time, and that was very confusing and complicated. There was a, always a new study coming out from Harvard or Yale or Stanford telling you the exact opposite of what you'd learnt the, the month before. But the Ayurvedic wisdom when I was reading this book was just so beautiful. It was simple and it was timeless and it just made sense to me. So I began studying Ayurveda formally and uh, that's why it's just such a, a great honour to be on your show. I know so many of your listeners are from India and what I learnt about my Vedic studies was um, Ved Bhumi Bharat, you know, that India, of course, is the land of the Veda. Ayurvedic wisdom is universal. It applies all around the world, but it's the great tradition of India that has kept this knowledge lively. And uh, so when I went to India after publishing my book about 10 years ago, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Health, it was really funny because um, I was doing interviews with, you know, the Times of India and the Deccan Chronicles and all these media outlets, and they were always um, almost laughing during the interview because a white man from Australia had come to India to tell Indians that this great tradition that you have right, you know, under your noses is is really a great wisdom and a rich wisdom and uh, and the ways of the, you know, Western countries isn't necessarily as, um, as shiny and as great as we're led to believe. So um, it's great to be here and, um, yeah, as I said, I think 
Um, you all have so much wisdom, and it's um, great to be talking with uh, those that have uh, Ayurveda in their blood. Wonderful. And uh, what sort of uh, changes did you make during that initial uh, initial period? I mean, did you start off? Uh, I know you you were captivated by it, but were you a bit skeptical? And how easy was it uh, to find acceptance? How easy or difficult, I must say. Was it to find uh, acceptance uh, within your team, with your coach, when you started using these uh, methods in the early 90s? It's a great question. And uh, the short answer was that I, I was a real weirdo. In fact, I always make the joke that, uh, you know, 30 years ago, um, I was a real, real crazy person because I, you know, I would go to the, the change rooms before a game. There'd be 70, 80,000 people in a stadium. And before a game, I would go off to the toilets and, and do my transcendental meditation while other players would have their headphones on and their rock and roll. And, and I would do yoga sun salutes, Surya Namaskara as my warm-up, you know, before the game. And I would, in training, I would do yogic nasal breathing while all the other players are sort of huffing and puffing, breathing through their nose. So, yes, no, I was really, I was really strange. And I actually didn't tell too many of my teammates what I was doing because I thought it would be sort of frowned on or I'd be laughed at. But now, of course, 30 years later, um, so much science and research and just global understanding of these ancient principles of health and fitness and performance uh, are now coming to light. So I uh, feel like I'm being uh, validated. <laughs> okay. And uh, before we come to the some of the main points that you talk about uh, in the book, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Health, uh, one final question. How was the transition from a professional player to now a leading speaker and author uh, and basically an advocate of uh, combining these uh, techniques? Yeah, no, it was definitely challenging. Uh, obviously, um, 20, 25 years ago, these ideas and practices such as yoga and meditation were not mainstream. Um, so it certainly had its challenges, but I was always sort of inspired by particularly my teachers, and I mentioned Mahashi Mahesh Yogi earlier, who was, you know, back in the 1950s, you know, the story was he came down from the Himalayas in Uttakashi in northern India because he was just overwhelmed by the suffering of people in, in the Western world, and he felt that it's just these simple practices of transcending and being able to go beyond the sort of surface level of, the turbulent mind and the stress and things we have is is actually not difficult. And, of course, at that time, most people around the world had no idea of meditation or they thought it was difficult or you had to be a monk and go off and be, you know, in the caves, but he just made it practical. So I've always been inspired by people like that just because something may not be popular at the time doesn't mean it's not true and it's not beneficial and someone has to... Um, tread the path and uh, so it's been challenging in many ways but also uh, really enjoyable to, to and rewarding I'm sure as yeah. the years okay. absolutely Great. okay now let's start with uh, the one of the principles that you enumerate and I have listened I've read about it and I have listened uh, you talk about it this is the concept of uh, live in tune with nature's daily cycles Mm. Uh, what does that mean exactly? And on a practical basis, how should we look at it? Yeah, it's a really interesting one now because what we have done over the last five or six years, particularly from a Western scientific perspective, is through things like circadian medicine and chronobiology, which are considered the really the cutting edge of modern science, that it's not just what we do in terms of you know, what food we eat, what calories, what type of exercise we do, what times of stress management. But even more important in many ways is when we do those things. And, of course, it's based on the timeless wisdom of Ayurveda. You know, the Ayurvedic texts thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago spoke about what's called dinacharya, that there's a daily routine that we humans are designed to live in tune with. And the analogy I use in my my conference seminars is a surfer and a wave. You imagine a big wave on the ocean 
And a surfer who understands natural law understands that timing is everything. If you catch the wave when the wave is at its peak, the wave does all the work. Mother Nature does all the work and the surfer just enjoys the ride. It's fun, it's enjoyable, it's exhilarating. And if you get the timing wrong, however, if you're swimming out to the wave when the wave's crashing down and smashing you on the head, then it's not very enjoyable at all. You get a mouthful of water and you're, I'm never going to do this surfing again. Well, the ancient sages, the ancient rishis of Ayurveda said that our life is exactly the same, that there are six four-hour cycles that our bodies go through every single day, that if we can adjust when we eat our food, when we get our sleep, when we do our exercise, when we do different parts of our job or our work, if we've got that flexibility, then life flows. It's like we're going with the wave. We're swimming with the current. So we enjoy good health. We have good energy. We sleep well when it's time to sleep. We wake up refreshed. We're clear thinking. We make good decisions in our business and our life. But if we violate those cycles, if we try and swim against the waves or the currents, then we have low energy, we get stressed, we don't sleep well, we're not motivated, and we make poor decisions and we get health problems like we're seeing around our world today because we are living collectively very often out of tune with these natural cycles. So uh, in in your uh, uh, book, Mark, you talk about looking at these uh, four-hour cycles actually starting in the evening because mm-hmm. you say that it's important to not to, you know, the, the, the natural way or most of the people start looking at it from the morning, you know, you wake up and do, but you do take a slightly different approach and say that uh, let's look at the cycle from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. and then take it forward uh, from there. So can you just uh, quickly take us through these uh, cycles, uh, these four-hour cycles? Yeah, it's a good point you make because there is a, a a universal understanding about what's called the morning routine. You know, many of your listeners will listen to other podcasts and when you listen to particularly business or self-development ones, it's all about establishing a good morning routine so that you're productive during the day. In Ayurveda, um, I have a very good friend who I speak with when I'm in America. We present together and she her name is Helen Toomey, and she says in Ayurveda, the day starts the night before. And it's a really wonderful line because if you don't have a good evening routine, then you compromise the sleep cycle, which runs from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. predominantly. This four-hour cycle from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. is basically when Mother Nature's got the wave at its peak to do everything we want in our Western or busy Eastern lifestyle, you know, detox, de-stress, get rid of the waste to rejuvenate the liver and the kidneys, have us ready for the next day. And so if, for example, we have a big, heavy meal, evening meal at 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock at night, like many do, particularly in Australia and America, and when I've travelled to India, it's becoming more and more that way with the middle class, etc. So that meal at seven or eight or nine o'clock at night is not going to be digested by the time that 10 p.m. wave starts to do its work. And so we compromise the ability to digest that food because naturally the digestive fire is not at its peak. It's at its peak in the middle of the day when the sun is at its maximum strength. But we also compromise our sleep cycle. That 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. cycle is when the body wants to send all its resources internally, as we said, to digest the toxins, get rid of the impurities, to rejuvenate the cells, to have us bouncing out of bed ready for the new day. If we've had a big heavy dinner late at night, then all those resources have to go to the stomach to try and digest that food, which means they're being diverted away from the rest of the body. And so what happens is we don't get a good quality sleep. Even if we sleep through the night, we wake up heavy, dull, we don't wake up with the sun, and everything's sort of behind the eight ball, we say, for the rest of the day. So, yeah, we try and get that evening routine, lighter dinner, reasonably early to bed, maximise that cycle so that we naturally wake up as humans are designed to wake up with the sun, 
energized, clear thinking. We can exercise in the early morning and our whole day starts off really well. Okay. And another aspect you touch upon is about eating habits uh, during the during the day and night. I mean, you touched up, uh, you know, you talked about it, about people having very heavy meals in the night and that being detrimental to a good quality sleep. And you also emphasize that uh, the largest meal of the day should be uh, between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. or let's say around noon. So can you just uh, uh, throw a little more light on that? Yeah. When I um, speak at um, conferences, I, I use a birthday sparkler. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but, you know, when you have big celebrations, Diwali Day or Mahalakshmi Day, you know, they have the big sweets and the beautiful Indian sweets of the, around the world and you have birthday sparklers and you light them and they sort of fizz and they active and they sort of burn and it's really beautiful. And so this I use to indicate the digestive fire, what we call Agni in Ayurveda, in the middle of the day. And it mirrors the cycle of the sun. In the early morning, the sun is relatively weak and our digestion is also relatively weak. But as we get to noon, which is the pitta time of day, pitta, energy, dynamism, transformation, it peaks. And so the, the digestive fire for humans peaks in the middle of the day just as the sun does. So when we eat food at this time, we're better able to digest that food, to absorb the nutrients, to assimilate all those nutrients. But at the end of the day, when the sun sets, the same thing. Our digestive fire or our agni also begins to go down towards sleep. And so this is why, yeah, where we can, again, we try and be practical, but just taking a little 30-minute, 60-minute break somewhere in the middle of the day might not be right on midday, but wherever is practical to sit down and have a good nourishing uh, meal, and then we can eat more lighter throughout the rest of the day and particularly towards the evening. Okay. And one final question I had was about Sista or the fact that a lot of people around the world do feel a bit sluggish between, let's say, post your lunch uh, during the midday and or at least when, you know, when that uh, mid-afternoon lack of energy and slowdown happens. So what can practically be done in, in a modern society to address this? Great question. Two reasons for this. If the, if the sluggishness or the heaviness comes straight after lunch, then usually this is a sign of poor digestion. Maybe we've eaten actually too much for lunch and we're unable to digest that food properly and so we get sleepy or sluggish. So the remedy for that one is just even though it's the we call it the main meal of the lunch at lunchtime, we still need to eat according to our appetite. So the principle in Ayurveda is that we eat to 75% of our capacity. So the stomach doesn't get full. We eat to 75% so that there's some room to properly digest that food. Where we get sort of sleepy or low energy more towards the middle of the afternoon, say 3.30, 4 o'clock, this is a very common thing. And this is actually due to what's called vata dosha. So between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. is when the principle of vata is at its peak. Vata is dominated by space and air. It's all about movement and communication. And so in the afternoon, we have this mid sort of afternoon energy slump. And so what we need to do here is just to recognize that it's actually in some ways a natural part of our body cycles. You know, we're actually not designed to have peak performance and energy levels right throughout the day. They actually fluctuate and cycle. It's like pulling the arrow back. Mahashi has this analogy that you pull the arrow back on a bow and then you release it to allow the arrow to shoot forward with energy and vitality. And so the mid-afternoon actually is a time where ideally we do take a little mini break. If we can't have a whole sort of 30 minutes away from work to go and meditate or something, even a five or 10 minute what we call a power nap and a lot of the great research, scientific research today, 
in top-level companies like your Googles and your Facebooks where people have these little power siesta naps, you know, little sleep pods, they have them. Performance and productivity skyrocket after them. So part of it is just mentally understanding that even though I might not be working for 5, 10, 15 minutes, my resultant productivity post that little mini rest will actually outweigh the time that I haven't been working. So other things are just like things like sweet teas. Often there's what's called like vata teas, very sort of sweet teas that calm the nervous system, maybe some sweet fruits, you know, some sweet lassie. If you do have a sweet tooth, often at afternoon tea we can just have a bit of um, like a sweet treat, something to just settle the vata down. And this can really help us. Well. Okay, that's quite helpful. Now, the next point, uh, we talked about uh, living in tune with nature's daily cycles. Uh, I want to move to exercise. And you talk about exercise in ways that unite mind, body and spirit. So can you give us yeah. uh, uh, an overview of that? And then I have some specific questions around that. Yeah, what I learned from Ayurvedic medicine about exercise was a real life changer for me. At the time, I was I said, playing elite professional sport and the underlying motto was no pain, no gain. That is, we have to push our bodies through their comfort zone, break the body down in a sense so that it will build up, push the cardiovascular system to its limits so that it gets stronger and we can run faster or quicker. This makes sense on one level, but of course, as we all appreciate as athletes and those that are listening that run or play sport, is there's a limit generally to that way of training. We call it the plateau. At some point, the body can't go any further and it actually starts to break down due to the stress on the system. The ancient wisdom, the Ayurvedic wisdom of exercise was that we actually don't train to the point of um, extreme stress. We actually reduce the intensity level and we incorporate various principles to do with breathing. So we breathe through the nose rather than the mouth, which most people breathe through when they get to any significant level of intensity. Breathing through the nose, however, allows the body to stimulate what's called parasympathetic nervous system or the, the rest and digest nervous system as opposed to our fight or flight response. Mouth breathing activates that fight or flight response. We start to burn carbohydrates more as our predominant fuel source rather than fat. Um, our digestion shuts down and it's a very short-term response, which is why traditionally it was our emergency or life-threatening response to stress. You know, we're out in the woods and a bear comes at us. We're going to fight the bear or get the hell out of there. And so this is the, the response. But we don't want that when we exercise because we're, what we're trying to do long term is to remove stress from the body. Because the ancient understanding is, in Ayurveda, that it is stress that blocks the infinite intelligence of mind and body to function perfectly which is yoga. Yoga means union, perfect union of mind and body. And it's stress that accumulates in the physiology, which obstructs that perfect functioning, the frictionless flow. And in sport, we know it as the zone state, you know, the runner's high experience. These experiences that people have maybe once or twice in their entire lives where they just get into the zone, they're in the flow, they're playing sport, they play the best game they've ever played, but it's effortless. There's no stress. They just spontaneous right action. They just think ahead of everyone else. The ball bounces the right way. When they're running, it's like their feet are just running on top of the ground. There's no heaviness. They're not building up lactic acid. And these are the peak experiences that we all, we all want, and we want them more. And what Ayurveda says is it's the way that we train that actually prevents us from having these states. Because we're always pushing the body beyond its limits, we're incurring stress rather than reducing stress. So 
in the book, the chapter you mentioned, we have what we call the ABC of exercise. If people want to sort of try to train in a slightly different way to improve their chances of having these experiences, the A is for attention. And that means that we actually have our attention on the body. When I go to gyms here in Australia, and I've been to gyms in India, you know, many people have, you know, got the headphones on or they're looking at the MTV on the TV screens. And what this does is it takes the attention away from what's happening in the body. So the great yogis, of course, says if we put our attention, our mind on the body, it actually improves the functioning of the body. There's even been research studies where they get three groups of people. One group lifts a weight, it's about 20 kilograms, and they you know, might do eight bicep curls um, 20 times, and they do that every day for um, three weeks. They get another group who actually don't lift any weights. They're a control group. And then a third group will actually lift the weight up just to experience how heavy it is. And then for the three weeks, they will just imagine in their mind lifting that weight as a bicep curl, 20 repetitions, you know, each day for three weeks. And what the study shows is that the group that lifted the weights had a 30% increase in muscle strength. Which is obvious. Yeah, which is obvious. Yeah, which we would, we, would, we would expect. The control group didn't get any improvement in strength, which we would expect. But it was the third group who actually didn't lift the weight but they just mentally imagined lifting the weight, had a 16% increase in muscle strength. And so it was just highlighting the fact that, as we understood anciently, just having the mind's attention, where energy, where attention goes, energy flows. And so this is important in exercise. Just by having the attention on the breathing, for example, when we're running, we actually improve the efficiency of our breathing. The B is for breathing and it's for nasal breathing. So just as people are exercising, close the mouth so that we don't breathe in through the mouth. We might have to slow our intensity down for a period of time, usually three or four weeks, as we become more efficient to take in air through the nose. But over three or four weeks, we'll sort of improve the efficiency of the whole respiratory system. We can breathe deeper, diaphragmatic breathing as if we're breathing into the belly. We can use what's called ujjayi pranayama, breathing on the exhalation where we just sort of restrict or constrict the back of the throat. We make like a Darth Vader sound as we exhale. And this helps to eliminate a lot of the waste gases from the lungs. And it also is what stimulates this parasympathetic dominant nervous system so we actually breathe less heart rate comes down and when we breathe this way the air or what's the prana the life force comes in the nose and goes straight by the olfactory nerve at the top of the nasal septum straight to our brain and so we get this yoga influence this integration of mind and body rather than disintegrating mind and body when we breathe through our mouth And the third and final principle is the C. So we have A, attention, B, breathing, and C is actually comfort or getting into our comfort zone. And the understanding is if these zone experiences, these runners high, are when we are in a sense of euphoria and comfort and ease and effortlessness, then we don't want to try and get into it through the exact opposite experience. We wanna stay in our comfort zone, so we're walking or we're running or we're riding our bike and it feels comfortable, we feel light, and then we keep increasing the pace, the intensity, until we reach a point where we can no longer maintain that comfortable nasal breathing. So the breathing becomes like our barometer, if you like. Once we go past that point, we slow down, we re-establish comfortable breathing, we feel light, it's easy, and then we keep trying to go. So we're always trying to go faster, we're always trying to go quicker, but we just don't keep pushing beyond the comfort levels. And although it takes a little bit longer, the philosophy is that we're taking stress out of the physiology during those 
exercise performances. So over time, we gradually just become a little bit more efficient. We can do higher levels of performance without the same levels of stress and strain. And it just becomes more enjoyable. Subjectively, we feel lighter and even more blissful sometimes. In fact, uh, from earlier this year, after learning about the benefits of uh, nasal breathing, I have been sticking to uh, pretty much 100% nasal breathing during my running. Uh, Admittedly, I'm running at a slower pace than what I normally do. But what I have observed observed over the last few months is the heart rate at which I'm able to hold the nasal breathing has gone up uh, dramatically. And uh, it's such an enjoyable, uh, enjoyable way of running. So I literally do now no mouth breathing uh, at all. And I can go, you know, I recently, I, a couple of Sundays back, I ran nearly three hours uh, just on uh, nasal breathing. So it's, it's a fantastic, mm. uh, fantastic way to adapt and uh, progress. Whatever exercise you are doing, I mean, I'm sure this is not just related to running. So it's, it's really, really useful. In fact, uh, Patrick McKeven of Oxygen Advantage, he's talking to me later this week, actually. So great. Yeah. So we will probably dive a little deeper on nasal breathing with him uh, on that episode. Excellent. And yeah. and uh, coming to the the last point I wanted to talk, Mark, was uh, around the the phrase that you use, enliven enliven the inner silence, uh, as one mm. of the wisdoms. Uh, just take us through that, please. Yes. So enliven in the silence um, comes from this understanding in all traditional cultures and particularly Ayurvedic medicine that the basis of dynamic, successful outer activity is non-activity or silence. There's that analogy of the hurricane. You know, we think of a hurricane and we think of these big, strong winds whirling around hundreds of miles an hour, but at the centre of a hurricane is a completely silent, calm centre. And when I got first introduced to Transcendental Meditation, I realised that this was Maharshi's teaching about life, that in the, in particularly in Western cultures, but more and more in traditional Eastern cultures now, we're getting so much work and we're so busy with our family lives that often we don't have the techniques to balance that out with inner rest. And so Maharshi's analogy was, in order to enjoy the fruit, we need to water the root. And he was talking about the analogy of a tree. If the tree represents our life and we want our life to be full of energy and success in work and family, then it represents the branches and leaves and the fruit of a tree. But we don't go around and water the branches of a tree because the tree would die. What we need to water is what we can't see with the naked eye, what lies underground. And Maharshi's principle was that even though we can't see it, consciousness, that non-physical part of who we are, is most important. And this was the Vedic tradition, wisdom for tens of thousands of years, that we need to enliven this inner wisdom, this inner silence, because that's the basis of all dynamic activity. And that's where I got into it 30 years ago. I learnt uh, TM when I was 19 years old and it was the best thing I've ever ever done in my life because I'm like everyone. I'm busy and I want to be successful and work hard, but without those little 20-minute-a-day periods each day just to transcend, transcend means to go beyond. So we go beyond the surface level of the mind, which is like the surface of an ocean, Maharshi says. You know, the waves are crashing and bashing and they're turbulent and they're agitated. But if we can settle the mind down, then like settling down to the bottom of the ocean, it's completely calm, silent, steady. And so those little periods of just inner silence when we transcend, absolutely gold, we come back into activity and we're clearer, we're more alert, and more successful in whatever activity we undertake. So um, that's you know in a silence. So this is this can be done uh, through transcendental meditation, of course, and I'm sure other meditation techniques. Would uh, 
things like uh, deep breathing exercises count towards this uh, uh, this inner silence it's a it's a wonderful question and, and really fortunate that in the last 5 years through what's called neuroscience we can now answer this question very clearly and what neuroscience has shown is that different types of meditation have very different effects and so all different types of meditation have their value absolutely but what science shows that we now know that there's three distinct types of meditation the first is what they call focused attention and this is the very sort of um traditional types of meditation where there's often some focus of the mind you know we have to concentrate on something or contemplate something and because there's a lot of mental activity associated with it the science shows that we predominantly have what's called gamma brain waves or beta and gamma brain waves which is the brain wave activity of mental thinking you know concentration so it's like we're treading water or swimming on the surface level of the ocean the second form of meditation is what's called open monitoring and this is where things like mindfulness meditation fall into rather than trying to focus on something or concentrate we just dispassionately observe our thoughts or our breathing or whatever it is and the science shows that this is very beneficial for as if ducking under the surface of the waves the mind settles down a little bit it's not so active but it is still active so it produces um predominantly theta waves and so which is sort of like the onset of dreaming there are slower brain wave but the third type of meditation that they've found is where transcendental meditation comes in and it's called automatic self transcendence and in tm as opposed to other forms of meditation they use a mantra a specific sound that allows the mind to completely settle down so that we arrive at what's called the source of thought so we transcend we go beyond thinking altogether we transcend sensory experience and we experience our actual self our true self pure consciousness and so this creates a completely different brain wave activity at the front of the brain what we call our executive control center the prefrontal cortex the ceo of the brain there is alpha 1 brain wave activity it's alpha 1 which is correlated to these zone experiences that we spoke about earlier these peak experiences where we have perfect mind body integration the other thing that tm does which the science shows is that it enlivens what's called our default mode network which is now being called the genius lounge and so those that are in um business will understand that they have their best ideas their most innovative insights you know their million dollar business ideas when their brain basically goes offline you know it's like the person that's trying to remember someone's name and they can't they're trying to think and they think and they give up and they go and have a shower or they go for a walk and the person's name pops into their head and so what they've found is that there's a a network in our brain that they're now calling the genius lounge and why people like Steve Jobs who's you know the former head of Apple computers known as this creative genius why he would go for a walk when he was meeting people instead of brainstorming ideas sitting down at the desk he would always ask them to come for a walk with him and this is where they would access this genius lounge so the research shows that when we transcend in transcendental meditation we actually enliven this genius lounge at the same time we have this alpha 1 coherence at the front of the brain when we do mindfulness or other concentration or focused attention type meditations we actually switch off the genius lounge and so this is why they are all different all of them are good they all have their benefits but tm has this unique ability to improve the communication between our genius lounge creative insights great ideas as well as our decision making focus concentration 
area at the front of the brain. Okay. So um, yeah, really interesting. Okay, this is uh, this is really helpful. And uh, so, how do somebody get started on uh, TM? I know I know it's a vast topic, and probably we can do a few episodes uh, on TM itself. But for somebody who's not experienced TM before, what's a good starting point? Yeah, so TM is taught as a uh, over a four-day course for about an hour, 90 minutes a day for four days. The first day you get your mantra, you get the instruction, and they have what's called three days of, of checking where you learn how to use the mantra properly and you can answer all your questions and how to do it when you're at home. And so this needs to be done by a certified teacher of TM. So TM can't be learnt online or from a book. So I suggest people can go to the website um, tm.org, O-R-G, and it has a list of all countries throughout the world, America and Canada and India and um, Europe, Australia. And uh, from there you can locate your country and then you'll find sort of the the TM centres that have teachers that can um, um, give you more information. They usually have what's called an introductory talk that can be done either online or at a centre where they just take you through everything about how it works, you know, the four days and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So tm.org is a really great resource for that. Okay. Thank you for that, Mark. Okay. Now, before we move on, uh, you know, I do a fun segment with my guests. It's a quiz of uh, five questions. So if you are ready, I would like to run through with that. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes, but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review, like for example, CastBox, please do that either. We also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com and also if you have any comments or suggestions to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. You can follow all podcast related updates on Instagram at the handle runningandfitnesswithraj or on Facebook on the Facebook group Running and Fitness with Raj. Now let's get back to the show. So the first one is... uh, in uh, road traffic parlance, uh, what is a green corridor? A green corridor in traffic. Uh, would that be where they block off the road to all vehicles? There's no vehicles, but they plant lots of green trees um, and plants. Uh, no, not, not <laughs> at all. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not that sort of a... Uh, that sort of a green. This is basically a designated corridor when you have to do organ transplantation when you have to move Ah, move organs from one end of the city uh, to another, from one hospital to another hospital. Uh, Uh So that's, that's the, that's what it is. Okay. Then uh, this next one is uh, again uh, uh, related to health, uh, which is uh, what is the term given to the time period which can last from just a few minutes to several hours after an injury is sustained, where there is the highest likelihood of preventing death, provided the person gets medical attention. What is that time period called? Uh, I think that's the uh, it's the uh, the golden time, golden the, hour, uh, yeah, the golden window, golden yeah, hour, yeah, golden hour, yeah, absolutely right. Okay, now Lulu and Nana are the name. Uh, names of twin girls who were born in China in 2018. They are believed to be the world's first what? Uh, they were uh, basically the uh, genetically designed babies in a sense. Yes, they so were genetically designed. Rather than natural birth. Yeah, yeah, they were genetically designed and uh, the scientist uh, He Jianqi was later indicted because this was all done very hush-hush. Uh, yes. Okay. Next one uh, is uh, on cleanliness and all that. What is the KonMari method? I don't know. You've got me there, Raj. Uh, KonMari method is popularized by Mary Kondo, the uh, the Japanese author and speaker, who talks about how to declutter your life. 
So, oh, yes. Yeah, so that's the KonMari method. So you basically declutter oh, yeah. using by category of item and not location. So clothes, books, paper, miscellaneous items, and then sentimental uh, sentimental items. And now the last Deep question and... is, uh, what is apnea diving more popularly known as? Apnea diving. Diving, that's a great term. I would suspect that is... Uh, is it anything to do with, you know, it wouldn't be deep, deep, deep sea diving, apnea diving, holding one's breath um, to improve respiratory function or something along those lines? Yeah, so it's free diving, basically. Free diving, yeah. So, so apnea diving yeah. is basically free diving, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, Mark, uh, I will obviously link uh, to your resources like your website, your, you know, links to your book, books and all of that. But are there any other resources that outside of the work that you produce that you can recommend to listeners, whether it be uh, some blogs or YouTube channels or websites that you recommend? Yeah, well, I always think um, TED.com is such a wonderful resource. Um, And there's a um, man called Dr. Guy Winch, W-I-N-C-H. He's a he's actually the international psychologist for TED.com. And uh, we've spoken together um, a couple of times at the same conference. He's a wonderful man, but he has just brilliant information. He has you know Instagram and social media. Um, but really great. Just I mentioned him because you know at the moment we're talking in the midst of COVID-19 and mental health is such a, a big issue for so many people, and he just has a, some wonderful resources. So Dr. Guy Winch, um, you could search for him on ted.com and uh, he'd be a great one to follow. Okay. Any, anything else comes to mind? Uh, what else comes to mind? Uh, well, I've mentioned, of course, tm.org is great. Um, there is um, Ayurveda principles on something called map.com, which is mappy, map.com is another great resource for those interested in more specific Ayurveda information as well as um, products. We mentioned things like the Vata tea for people who don't sleep well or want to manage that afternoon um, energy slump. They So they have a great bunch of resources on books. Um, their doctor, they have Ayurvedic doctors that write really great blogs um, so mappy.com, I would also highly recommend. Okay, sure. I will um, uh, put a link to all, all, all of this. Now, I know that, Mark, in your podcast, you start with a joke and uh, end with a joke. So if you don't mind, can you share a joke with us? Uh, yes, um, uh, I'll be very happy to. And I think in honor of uh, the fact that I think most of your listeners uh, come from India, I'll tell my favorite uh, Indian joke. And it was... Uh, about a, a princess um, in India and her father, great Raj, who had a great kingdom in uh, Rajasthan, um, always wanted to um, make his daughter happy. And so she went to the king one day and she said, Father, you know, I'm of marriageable age. I really want to get married, but I don't want to marry just anyone. I want a very strong, noble man who's courageous and brave and has all the best qualities of man. So the king thinks to himself and thinks, well, what he'll do is he'll have a big banquet at the kingdom and he'll invite all the great noblemen right throughout India and the great sort of warriors and the, the courageous men and uh, and see if any of them are, are worthy enough for his daughter's hand in marriage. So anyway, they arrange the event and the daughter says, but I want to know that, you know, he's really most interested in, in me. And uh, so I want to also have you to offer some other prizes to to the man. And so what the king does is he takes everyone outside and there's a large pool. It's about 20 metres long. And so he puts in the pool all these venomous water snakes and eels and piranhas and he hires some crocodiles from Australia and stingrays and, and he gets up in front of all the, you know, thousands of men that have come and he says, you're here tonight for a very great prize. The first man who can successfully swim through the pool of piranhas and eels and stingrays and get to the other side 
can either have my daughter's hand in marriage, they can have some of my vast lands throughout the kingdom, or they can have a treasure of gold. But they must do this before midnight tonight. And so it's about 7 o'clock and nothing happens, and then 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10, 11, still nothing happens. At a minute before midnight, there's a large splash in the pool, and everyone looks around and there's a man and he pops up and he's bashing off the eels and he's taking leeches off his shoulder and he's swimming through and he's knocking off the crocodiles. After what seems like about five, ten minutes, he gets to the other end of the pool and he gets himself out of the water and the king rushes down and he says, my, I can't believe it. What an unbelievable thing you have done. You've got through the pool. Tell me, tell me, what would you like? Would you like the treasure of gold, the vast parcels of land, or my daughter's hand in marriage? And the man says, I don't want any of those. And the king says, what do you mean? What do you want? And he says, I want to find the bastard who pushed me in the pool. <laughs> good story. Good, uh, good story. Hey. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> right. Okay. Mark, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, this was quite insightful. Uh, I know that there are many other topics that, uh, you know, we can discuss with you. And, you know, we really hope we will be able to host you again, uh, you know, in a few months' time. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Raj. It'll be a pleasure to uh, come back anytime and keep up your great work and to all your listeners, uh, wishing them great health. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much to all the listeners. Please check out the podcast website, runfitraj.com. That is R-U-N-F-I-T-R-A-J.com. It has all the podcasts, it has all the show notes, and there is a very useful search function as well. You can reach out to me on my social media handles, which are Running and Fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me on runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show. I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy. Until the next show, goodbye.